Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Aftermath of the Resurrection. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus, well, there has been a debate as to what occurred. The apostles spread the glad news that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead, and the enemies spread the news that it was a fabrication. So let's understand what's at stake. First, let's understand what's at stake for those of us who are believers. Let's follow Paul's thoughts on this matter. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Well, now Paul makes at least two points here. Let me address the second one first. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen in fact, The apostles, as well as those who wrote the rest of the New Testament, are misrepresenting God. They're saying God did something when, in fact, he didn't do it at all. See, in that case, the New Testament as a whole would be premised on a deception. And if that were the case, it had lost its credibility. And since the Church of Jesus and all of Christianity is based on the teachings of the New Testament, then we'd have to say that the Christian faith has lost all credibility we'd have to say it's untrue. And that then brings me to Paul's first point. If Christ has not been raised, he says, in that case, our preaching is in vain. He means that it is ineffective, that it produces nothing of value. And I stop here because I'm aware there are liberal so-called Christians who have believed that the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. And yet they claim there's great value in the Christian faith. They point to the ethical teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the impact of Christian morality on the world and on individuals. Is that not of some value, they ask? And to that I love to respond. I mean, what ethical and moral value do you find in the New Testament that's unrelated to the resurrection? And they'll often respond to the ethic of Jesus as in, for instance, turning the other cheek, blessing our enemies. That prevents the world from degenerating into unrelenting jihad and revenge. Now, while it's good to love our enemies, how could we possibly persuade people to do so? I mean, won't their enemies just ride roughshod over top of them? Evil men love it when good men do nothing and turn the other cheek. I mean, how is that good? But the Christian answer is that first, God has given governments the mandate to enforce justice But on a personal level, we can bear injustice because the day of the resurrection lies before us. In that day, eternal justice will be served. Now, if the resurrection of Jesus is, however, untrue, how can we be assured that there is a final justice that awaits anyone? If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, isn't Paul right when he says, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Everything the New Testament teaches rests on the resurrection. Paul was right. If the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the tomb didn't happen, then our preaching surely is in vain. It's void of value. And so from that perspective, let me give five important implications that rise from the resurrection of Jesus. First, and really the most obvious one, the one I spoke of yesterday, is that the resurrection authenticates Jesus. He said, 
He had the authority to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again. He said he would rise from the dead. He said he was Lord of heaven and earth and that he was the author of life. If Jesus didn't rise, he's discredited himself. Second, another obvious truth is that the resurrection of Jesus ensures us that we who believe in him will also rise with him. And here we mean that we will bodily rise with him. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So just like a first crop that's brought in from the larger field, so Jesus is the first in a series of resurrections that will follow. As his body was raised, so ours also will be raised. As his body was no longer subject to aging or disease or suffering, ours will be as well. Indeed, the reason Christian martyrs have laid down their lives for their faith is because they were assured that they, like Jesus, would rise again. This is also why not just the martyrs, but all those who truly believe no longer dread death. Our resurrection is not a vain hope. It's grounded in a historical reality. That is our hope. Third, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our regeneration or our new birth. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now we are, says Peter, born again through the resurrection. I know that many of us, you know, we're trained to think that we're born again through the cross. And of course, listen, the cross provides for us the forgiveness of our sins. Christ suffered for us. He became our sin substitute on the cross. The Father's wrath is satisfied by the sufferings of Jesus. But there's something in the resurrection that's essential to our new heart that now loves God and seeks to live according to his will. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new life, a new body, the life of the world to come. And now we have been, through faith, united with him. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life just like his. And of course, we'll struggle with sin now. And of course, we'll still be subject to aging and death now. But our spirits are made alive through the resurrection. The life of Jesus is already at work in us. And that life can't be extinguished. The resurrection guarantees that. Fourth, the resurrection of Jesus also ensures that our sins are forgiven. See, in Romans 4.25, Paul says, Christ was raised for our justification. So, how so? Well, the answer is that the resurrection is the means whereby the Father announced that he is approved of the cross. How else would we know that the cross forgives were it not for the resurrection? Philippians 2 verse 8, we're told that Jesus humbled himself even to the cross And then we're told in the very next verse, verse 9, that God highly exalted him, and that was done through the resurrection. If Jesus is left in the tomb, if his body decayed and decomposed there, if he was not bodily raised, then the Father did not highly exalt him. And his death on the cross is the end, not the beginning. But God did exalt him because we know that Christ was raised. And then fifth, the resurrection is the grounding of all that we do in this life. It's the basis for all Christian ethics. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, to have our mindset on things above is to be motivated to act here on earth with a mindset of the values of the kingdom of heaven. Holiness, purity, humility, love, thankfulness, treating others as we would want to be treated. I mean, all of that has everything to do with the raised Jesus being citizens of the resurrection to come. Indeed, the sufferings we endure in this life are nothing to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And so to be clear and to restate myself, everything but everything rises or falls on this one fact, Christ was raised. Now, let's turn the matter around. And I say that because in just a little while, we're going to look at those men shortly after Jesus rose from the dead who did everything in the world to suppress the news of the resurrection. I mean, what if from the perspective of those who will not bend the knee to Christ, what if Christ was indeed raised from the dead? See, if Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the central figure in all of history and in the life of every human being. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then God, the creator of all, has highly exalted Jesus over every other name so that in the end, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue would confess that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's Lord and sovereign over all to the glory of God. Indeed, consider the theme of Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's the resurrected Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled. He's the judge of all men and women, and all will give an account to him. You see, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is as significant for those who submit to him, as well as for those who refuse to do so. Everything's at stake in that one event. And so for that reason, after Jesus was raised, his enemies were hard at work. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. While they're going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Repress the resurrection, they say, too much is at stake. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. In Matthew's account on the resurrection, he turns from the joy of the women who have just encountered Jesus to the duplicitous chief priests. 
Remember, they're the ones without their leadership, Jesus would not have been crucified. Not long after the events that Matthew describes, we go forward to the book of Acts. Peter, John, the rest of the apostles, they've witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So the church has now begun and Peter preaches to the assembled crowd in Jerusalem. So listen to him preach part of his sermon. Here I'm reading Acts 2, 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That was the truth. Indeed, by the time Peter preached, all Jerusalem had become aware of it. Jesus had indeed not just appeared to a few, but at one time he had appeared to more than 500. Indeed, who could deny before his death the signs and wonders he had done? As Peter said, it was done in your midst or among you, right there in your presence. You've witnessed it. And now the resurrection in which many reliable witnesses have gone forward. But it's the middle of this passage when Peter says that must have graded the elders of Israel. He said that Jesus was put to death by the hands of lawless men. And that's exactly what happened. Illegal night trials, false witnesses, the excitement of a mob demanding the crucifixion of Jesus, even after the governor has found him innocent. An illegal arrest, an illegal trial, false witnesses, mob justice. And now God the Father had declared his choice. He had raised Jesus from the dead. See, at the very outset, the chief priests made up their mind. They would do anything possible to stop that from happening. Evil men not interested in truth, not wanting to acknowledge the man they crucified is indeed Lord of life and death. They now decide they will do whatever they can to suppress the evidence. And so Matthew tells us what happened. While they were going, and that refers to the women, while the women were going, having encountered Jesus, and they're on their way to tell the disciples the incredible news that the tomb is empty and they've seen Jesus. While that's happening, some of the guard went to the chief priests. Several things. Why do they go to the chief priests if they're Roman guards? Why don't they go to Pilate? And the answer, well, it has to be, they don't go to Pilate because Pilate has put them under the authority of the chief priests, and so they're obligated to report to him. But these soldiers, having seen an overwhelmingly powerful angel who might have killed them with one stroke, who so overwhelmed them that there was nothing to be done, they had deserted their charge. Roman guards who lost their charge might well be executed, and they knew that, and so a delegation, or most likely the leadership of the guard, now appear before Annas and Caiaphas, and they try to explain what happened. And the guards are in a dilemma. They can tell the truth, and in that case, it's the truth that the chief priests definitely don't want to hear. The repercussions might be severe, or I guess they can lie. They can say that the disciples mounted a successful attack on the guard, that they were defeated by the likes of Galilean fishermen, and the disciples stole the body. And if they use the second story, it seems quite likely that the report of their failure is going to go well beyond the chief priests. It will be reported to Roman military chain of command. And so the leaders of the guard choose to speak the truth. An angel appeared from heaven. His power was beyond what any human can resist. And in consequence, they all became like dead men and they were lying on the ground. The stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. 
and they had to run for their lives, for there was nothing they could do but to save their own lives, and that was the truth. See, I find it fascinating that in reading this account that Matthew is careful to tell us the guards told the chief priests all that had taken place. They held nothing back. If they were to be punished for this, then let the whole truth be known. They would die giving an accurate account. Annas and Caiaphas make a very quick decision. They call an assembly of the elders and take counsel. And here I assume they mean not the entire 70 members, but the leadership of the Sanhedrin. So these elders are the leaders of the nation. We don't know who made the suggestion. The only way out of this, they said, is to lie and to continue to lie and to be consistent in the lie. So I find that approach fascinating. I do because groupthink is an incredible phenomenon. It assumes the decision that we've made, the decision to murder Jesus was the right decision. And now the news of the angel and the overpowering of the Roman guards and the taking away of the seal of the tomb and then the tomb being empty, instead of saying, you know, it's time that we take stock of the decision that we have made and come to terms with it. No, no, they don't do that. They make a very quick decision. I mean, after all, they've already paid out blood money from the treasury to pay off Judas. I mean, what's one more misuse of temple funds? And so they release funds. And we're not told how much, but it had to be enough that those guards that received the money were then put under oath that they wouldn't tell the truth in the future. And so whatever the amount of the bribe, we have to assume it was considerable. It had to cover every single soldier of that guard, and it had to be enough that the soldiers would think it expeditious to keep their mouths shut. I think it must have been considerable. In those days, the appearance of an angel, even though that would have been an unusual encounter, it wouldn't have been thought impossible. To be overwhelmed by an angel for a Roman soldier, that was far better than being overwhelmed by a fisherman and a tax collector and a few others all without any military training or any weapons that were be counted on. I mean, to get men to own up to such a story that the fishermen overwhelmed them, that must have cost the temple a considerable amount of money. But lying men know no bounds. They're committed to the lie, and they must press on. The guard now has to confess they all fell asleep, every one of them. Then the large stone was moved, and no one heard a thing. And then they dragged the body of Jesus out of there. And, you know, the disciples must have stepped over the sleeping guards and no one was any the wiser. That's the story. Stick with it. The elders of Israel have one more story. Eventually, these guards will come up for discipline. And so the elders give an assurance. They will use their influence to provide an excuse as to why none of these military men are going to be disciplined. As with all lies, there are certain dangerous cracks in the building. You know, if we're even slightly interested, We might ask, I mean, how is it that not one military man was disciplined for the theft of the body? But it was a crack in the building the chief priests thought they could live with. If the guards were executed, they would have, before their execution, told the entire truth. And that must not be allowed to happen. And so they had to let the risk remain. See, the facts, if anyone wanted to unearth them, would always be there. There's no denying that the Roman soldiers had been there to guard the body. And the elders of Israel had ordered that. There was no denying that the tomb had been sealed. There was no denying that the body was now gone. For if the body had been there, everyone knew the elders would have paraded that decaying corpse down Main Street in Jerusalem. There was no body. There's no denying that not one member of the Roman guard had been disciplined for the dereliction of duty. This sounds like a cover-up. 
But in order to prevent the people from asking those questions, the elders decide they'll get ahead of the story. They had their people, and those people were to move out among the population of Jerusalem and actively spread their story. The disciples, those horrible men, came in the night while the guard was sleeping and pulled off the greatest heist in human history. And in order to make that story stick, you have to keep telling and retelling and retelling it, getting their stooges to retell it the same way every time. And that brings us back to the issue. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not just an event that any thinking person can ignore. It either means that God became a man, that the Messiah and the Savior of sinful human beings has come to us, that he introduced the kingdom of God to us, that he died for the sins of a desperately wicked human race, that he rose from the dead and demonstrated the truth of everything he had said and now offers eternal life to all who come to him. Either that's true or it's a massive lie that has been perpetrated among us. That lie was perpetrated, if we believe it was a lie, by none other than Jesus, whom we have to assume now is the greatest deceiver the world has ever known. So those two options are the only ones we have. So much is at stake. Matthew says the lie that the disciples stole the body is a lie that had been spread abroad. That means that the temple leadership went to synagogue after synagogue in the diaspora. So let me stress to you, my dear listener, you can't be neutral on this matter. Either Jesus was among the world's most evil men, or he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who demands of you your life, your soul, your all. If you choose to ignore that question, you've chosen to side with those who claim that Jesus is evil. You see, you must choose. Thanks so much, John. Here's the question. How does the resurrection of Jesus make Christianity stand out as different from any other world religion? Yeah, you know, so it, it is different. You see, uh, this whole thing about uh, the fact that the resurrection happens not in mythology, but in real history. That he who was dead is now raised and that the life to come has already happened in our day. So one resurrection has occurred, and therefore we have hope that all who have put their trust in him will be raised along with him. Uh, there is no teaching in any religion of the world that even comes close to declaring that. Uh, and so, you know, there may be, you know, hope in a resurrection that is to come, but there is no certainty that the resurrection has already begun to occur. That is the Christian faith. That's why it's unique. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Easter season is upon us. It's a time we celebrate and honor the victory of our Savior. Sin was defeated and forgiveness won. Because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we can now look beyond this world to the eternal, heavenly relationship that awaits with the Creator. To help you commemorate and meditate on this precious act of love, Back to the Bible Canada is offering two Easter-themed programs this season. Visit our YouTube channel and check out Dr. John's nine-message series, Journey to the Cross. And be sure to also tune in to his four-week audio series, the death and resurrection of Jesus based on the book of Matthew. This series, along with many others from years past, 
can also be found at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, perhaps consider giving a gift to sustain the creation of future Bible teaching resources from Back to the Bible Canada.